Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker, Mark Cowley. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. So today, friends, let's have a frank discussion, a course correction, and a new direction. Because honestly, friends, I am appalled, I am embarrassed, and I am disgusted by my own level of self-absorption. And I hope to help you see how most of us are turned profoundly inward in this culture, the exact opposite of what Messiah Yeshua taught us to be. Most of all, my hope is that we will leave here today with a shifted focus and a determination to give ourselves away. And you might be thinking, "Uh, Mark, we haven't heard from you in a few months. Don't you want to kind of enter back in easy? (laughs) Well, I would, but just think of me as the messenger today. But if this helps any, I will say this. Takes one to know one, and I'm the biggest one, okay? So uh, this morning, I will expand on this problem of self-worship. Then I will describe the better way, leading to a practical assignment, and I will grade your homework. No, I won't. Well, to begin with, I'd like to share a story from the latest edition of the magazine, Voice of the Martyrs. Have you heard of this magazine? Yes? It's been over a year. Let's see. Okay. Oh, sorry. Did I hold it? There we go. It's been over a year since Chinese authorities wrenched Pei Wenzhou and Jing Jianan's four adopted children from their arms, telling them that their adoption papers were no longer valid because the kids were, quote, trapped in an evil religion, end quote. Heartbroken and confused, the persecution didn't stop there. Weeks later, they were kicked out of their home of eight years. Sometime later, local authorities raided the 500-member Early Rain Covenant Church in Sichuan, where Pei and Jing were devoted attendees. By the end of the day, more than 100 church leaders and members were arrested, and the government had seized the church's property. Members of that church always knew that persecution might eventually show up at their doors, yet the members were never deterred by it and continued to live out their faith despite constant harassment by the authorities for not conforming to China's sanctioned, state-controlled, three-self church. How telling is that name, the three-self church. But you know, in spite of the church persecution in China, there is a vibrancy in the church there, as well as with other persecuted believers across the globe. And I think that we all understand that persecuted believers live a life that is utterly dependent on God, and as a result, their investment in the faith is perhaps fresher, uh, even more exhilarating than those of us who rarely or never suffer for our faith. And one of the markers of that vibrancy is that those believers are less self-focused and more other-focused, more body-focused, and more Messiah-focused. Now, this is not an indictment against us per se, 
but it does lead to the need to more thoroughly examine the emphasis that we place on self in our culture, and especially in the midst of this generation, the era of social media, the era of the selfie, the uh, era where we feel it necessary to self-promote on Facebook or Instagram and to spew our opinions, ask for or otherwise, on Twitter. We have become this, and why? Well, let's let Scripture answer those questions. In the last days, it says in 2 Timothy, men will become what? Lovers of self. We are there now, my friends. Let's look at Scripture more closely. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And that scripture, my friends, cut me to the quick. How much are we lovers of self? Take, for instance, our response during the pandemic. Now, in short, we've had two choices during this time of global upheaval. Either we've resisted this season and spent all of our effort trying to return to normalcy, or we have embraced and adjusted to this time in the same way that persecuted Christians embrace and adjust on a daily basis. You see, for most of us, there is an interesting element to human nature called, boy, I'm not getting this right there, okay. <clears throat> the word is this, it's called homeostasis. Have you heard this word? It means balance. Uh, human beings naturally attempt to uh, maintain homeostasis. So, for instance, if it gets too hot, too cold, we quickly seek to regulate the temperature so that we can feel comfortable. Well, um, if we're, uh, uh, more importantly, when there's a crisis that takes place like loss of a loved one, loss of a job, uh, sickness, natural disaster, displacement from homes, and yes, even pandemic, we most often put all of our energy into restoring homeostasis. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but as followers of Yeshua, Jesus, it cannot be our priority. Perhaps our need for homeostasis is born out of fear. We don't like the uncomfortable, the unfamiliar. Uh, but what it can also indicate is that when we are comfortable, our tendency is to fit God into our lifestyle rather than dying to self each day. More often, when we experience stress and change, we work to rebalance instead of responding as those tasked with advancing the kingdom of God. Could it be that God loves us to the degree that He is now moving us out of complacency and self-focus toward a lifestyle that ushers in His return, or at the very least, teaches us not to rely on the familiar and the cushy lives that we lead. 
Frankly, I think that most of us in the United States fully believe that we will return to normalcy. It kind of appears that way now. But what if we don't? What if there are more waves of this thing and it goes from bad to worse? Can we use this time to prepare for something different and get our eyes off of ourselves? All right, I've described the problem and how the selfishness of the culture has greatly affected us who profess the kingdom of God. So now let's look at the better way. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers, by the right to be proud, which the Messiah Yeshua our Lord gives me, I solemnly tell you that I die every day. So on one hand, he's saying that he has the right to be proud, but he then says that he dies. And then later, uh, so my dear brothers, stand firm and immovable, always doing the Lord's work as vigorously as you can, knowing that united with the Lord, your efforts are not in vain. Likewise, Adonai's word to us is that we should die to self in Mark 8. Then Yeshua called the crowd and his disciples to him and told them, and you know this verse, if anyone wants to come after me, let him say what? Say it. Let him say, come on. Let him say to himself, take up his execution stake and keep following me. Now listen to this next verse, because you've never really read it. For whoever wants to save his own life will what? But whoever does what? Destroys his life for my sake and for the kingdom or for the good news will save it. Wow. Doesn't sound like there's much of a choice, does there? It's one or the others, friends. What would it look like to die every day, to die to self, to lose our lives for the sake of the good news and for the sake of others? Can we actually learn or train ourselves to become less self-focused? Yes, we can. I know that you could think of many ways to give yourself away, to die to self, but today... I want to spur you to action in a very specific way. I'll give you some ammunition today, some very practical helps that will help you get out of here and out here. First, friends, I do want to point out an intriguing phrase that caught my eye from a prayer called the Elenu Lashibaach. Uh, this is a Jewish prayer found in the Siddur, the classic Jewish prayer book. Aleinu uh, Leshevaach means it is our duty to praise, which is what we did during worship today. Or it means it is our obligation. Here are the first few lines from the Aleinu. It is incumbent upon us to praise the master of all, to exalt the creator of the world, for he has made us separate from the nations and unique among the families of the earth. Our destiny is not like theirs. Our calling is our task. Our calling is our task. We bow down and acknowledge before the King of kings that there is none like him. And it goes on with these gorgeous praises to Adonai. 
But I wanted to point out that phrase and tie it to the topic that we're discussing. The phrase, our calling is our task. Our calling is our task. And what is our calling? We in the Western church frequently examine this topic, don't we? And we ask God, God, what is my calling? What am I here for? What, what do you intend for me to do? You have no doubt asked this question, as have I, but I would now like to offer you a startling revelation. But rather than me tell you, Lily, get ready, I'm going to have a wonderful man of God and pastor, Francis Chan, share it with you now. Lily, go ahead. I remember uh, just, I, I went out to, to the Malibu area. I live in Southern California. I just went out to this beach called Zuma Beach. There's a little Starbucks across the streets. So I went to Starbucks, got my little coffee, grabbed a little muffin, you know, and went out to the beach, watched the sunrise, just sitting on my, my little uh, towel there, you know, when I came before God, because you're supposed to go to the beach to find yourself, right? And so I get there, you know, got my little coffee, and I just like, okay, Lord, who am I? What am I supposed to do on this earth? And it was one of those times where I just believe God spoke to me. And, uh, and I, I do, like Bill, I come from a very conservative background. I graduated from the Master's Seminary and John MacArthur, so don't tell him I said this. Um, I, I heard God speak. Um, I, I just believe that as, uh, <laughs> as I'm sitting there having my coffee, eating my muffin, just asking God, what is my calling? I felt like I'd hear God saying, that's cute, Francis. Look at you on your little blankie. <laughs> Drinking your coffee, eating your muffin. Meanwhile, there are millions of people who are just hoping to live through the day. Every three seconds, someone dies of hunger goes another one. They will never have the luxury of sitting on a little, you know, towel and looking out at the ocean, drinking a Starbucks, eating a muffin and going, what is the meaning of my life? They're just hoping to live. And so God was saying, what do, what do you think I want you to do? What do you think my heart is? Read that book. What does that book say from the front to the end? I'm a father to the fathers. I'm a defender of widows. You want to show me some true religion? Care for the widows, the orphans. Take care of them. Man, and, I, and, and just that, that thought just hit me. Like, what am I saying? What is my calling? The fact that right now that there are people, there are moms. I was there. I was in northern Uganda. Man, watching moms holding their babies, just going, man, would anyone just give me something to eat? And I remember just looking in their eyes going, gosh, this is driving me crazy. I will do something. I will do something. I promise you I will do something. There. When Francis Chan got home from that trip to Africa, he told his wife that he couldn't live in his house anymore. And they began looking at mobile homes. <laughs> Am I suggesting that? I'm not suggesting anything. You let the Lord speak to your heart about all of this. I'll tell you what, that clip hit me in my selfish stomach. Did it hit you in yours? So, <clears throat> Francis Chan was convicted by the fact that 53% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. He goes on to read 1 John 3, 
16 through 18. The way that we have come to know love is, is the way we have come to know love is through his having laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If someone has worldly possessions and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? Children, let us love not with words and talk, but with actions and in reality. Friends, are we gifted and called into specific special ministry? Yes. Yes, we are. But never to the exclusion of the most basic calling of Yeshua. Think back to our opening clip. The more that we contemplate the importance of our personal ministry, the less useful that we become for the kingdom of God. Friends, we need to go back to basics. Consider, for instance, the second commandment, the second greatest commandment. We first find it in the great statement of faith in the one true God called the Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6. And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we exist. And us Christians add this, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom were created all things and through whom we have our beings. Now, here are the first and second commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And say it. And your neighbor as yourself. See, what Yeshua calls the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor, even if he is our enemy, as ourselves. Now, have you ever contemplated how to carry that out? Don't you know that Scripture can be very specific about how to love your neighbor? And I want to give you an example. Those of you who know me know that I have a profound love for our Hebrew roots of our faith and uh, reading uh, the Old and New Testament, or the New Testament through the lens of a first century Hebraic viewpoint. So um, this is actually a metaphor, Hebraic metaphor, that is both practical and usually misunderstood. In fact, there are many biblical metaphors that Christians often misunderstand since they're not looking through that lens. But you know this, by rightly seeing these metaphors, we gain a more accurate view of God's nature and His will for us, and in this case, how to love your neighbor. Now, what I will share with you in the next several minutes is designed to lead you to the assignment that I will suggest to you after. So it's all leading up to that, so bear with me. Certainly, you recall this admonition found in Proverbs, and then it's found again in Romans. We are told to do good to our enemies and to heap burning coals upon their heads. Remember that? I want to shed some light on this phrase in the right Hebraic context to rightly reflect the character and will of God. So the verse reads, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, in our Western mindset, we see heap burning coals on his head as a way to cause him to feel shame. 
uh, and remorse that will cause him to feel awful and come to his senses because of what we've done for them. See, the idea appeals to our sense of justice. In fact, it's a kind of revenge, if you think about it. But you know what? God's ways are not our ways. Now, I do imagine that some people may feel convicted by loving generosity, and that's wonderful. But we also know that most folks won't change behaviors or attitudes no matter how much kindness is shown them. So let's look then at the true contextual meaning of heaping burning coals on our enemies' heads and the Lord's intent for us and for them. Here's some context. Back up to Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu 36.22, says simply this, the king was sitting, sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. Okay, what does that have to do with anything, Mark? Well, a brazier, also known as a fire pan, was placed in the family home in the ancient Middle East to keep the home warm and to cook simple meals. Now, uh, it became imperative that the fire stay lit, both through the day and the night. If the fire went out, say, in uh, the winter of Israel's north or on the hills of Jerusalem where it snowed, it could result in death. So... When the coal supply depleted, the woman or the man of the house might ask a neighbor for a refill. Now, a friendly neighbor would likely meet their need and perhaps even offer bread and drink to a friend in need. To feed an enemy and give him drink, however, was like heaping the empty brazier, the empty fire pan with live coals, which meant food and warmth and perhaps even life itself to the person or home needing it. And it was the symbol of finest generosity. You see, heaping coals on an enemy's head is a metaphor for simply providing for his basic survival needs with no strings attached. It's not about shaming them through our generosity. It's about showing love, period. So how do we apply that understanding to our lives today. When, when a woman in ancient Israel knocked on a neighbor's door with an empty fire pan, the owners of the home had a choice to make. Either keep their coals for themselves, ensuring their own warmth and, and safety, or generously share their coal supply and risk going cold and hungry themselves. Likewise, when people betray or insult us, we have a choice to make. We can bless their lives through acts of love, or we can curse them through acts of revenge. Blessing the lives of our enemies and our neighbors, it's not just a nice suggestion. It is a divine instruction. In Leviticus 19, the second greatest command reads this way, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, what you would hate for yourself, don't do that to your neighbor. But why does God want us to give life to our enemies and neighbors? Well, we could answer because he told us to do so, and, and that would be enough. We could also remind ourselves that we are God's workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua to do what? Good works. Only the pastor knew that? Mm. 
See, sometimes I think we're so carried away with the grace of God that we forget to do what he told us to do. Uh, Good works which God prepared in advance as our way of life. And that would be enough too. But you know, the Lord also wants to bless us. And so, we learn that by heaping coals on, giving life to our enemies, we will reap a reward from the Lord Himself. The Lord rewards those who follow His instructions and give themselves away. You know, there's 14 verses overflowing with blessings promised in Deuteronomy 28 to those who obey God's laws. It even works for non-believers when they practice the principles that God has laid forth. And those include loving our neighbor. The Apostle Peter also wanted believers to know what, that a blessing awaits those who repay evil with kindness. And he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. As an aside, uh, I will mention this. Blessing our enemy does not equate to allowing ourselves to be taken advantage of, especially in the face of aggression. Uh, But if that were the case, Israel would have surrendered uh, when five neighboring armies waged war against her the day after uh, she declared independence. As a sovereign nation, she had a right to defend herself. But throughout war, however, there is still opportunity to heap coals on and give life to the enemy. And I want to share this story with you. You'll remember this. Our own Abraham Lincoln was reportedly telling a group of White House visitors about his plans to treat the South leniently after the war. Well, a guest objected with, but Mr. President, I would think that you'd want to destroy your enemies. And Abraham Lincoln said this, Don't I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Our Father expects us to extend life to others in the same way that He has extended life to us. In our own daily lives, the the proverb to heap coals on our enemy's head is about finding ways to give life to others and thereby get our eyes off of our selfie selves. Now, in this context, an enemy may just be somebody who rejects the gospel of Christ. It doesn't have to be somebody you're mad at, right, or somebody that's abusing you. It can be just somebody who's an enemy of the cross. So, how shall we walk this out practically? All that to lead up to this. How shall we deny our selfie selves and begin considering our neighbor, whether friend or foe? We've talked about the problem or self-focus. We've described the better way. Now, here are my concluding thoughts and a specific challenge for you this week. The problem. We've become self-absorbed as our culture has taught us the opposite of what God wants from us. By the way, I know I'm speaking in graphically generalized terms, and I know that there are saints out there who can't do enough to give themselves away, okay? So, but I'm talking to myself, 
All right? And I think some of you can come along with me, right? The problem, the solution is to bless others both within the body and those outside the faith. Okay, here's your homework. Practical application. I want to invite you to perform intentionally, perform an act of kindness for at least five of the next seven days. But what I'm going to do is the second choice. Perform an act of kindness for a family member or friend. Perform an act of kindness for somebody in the body here. Perform an act of kindness who is a non-believer and someone who is a stranger. So that would be four acts of kindness to different people. So what do we mean by acts of kindness? Well, several examples there. It could simply be praying and blessing an enemy or non-believer with no strings attached. It could be blessing somebody financially, especially without them knowing where it came from. It could be helping somebody with a chore or yard work. It could be sending a word of encouragement to someone. It could be visiting someone. It could be volunteering our time. It could be cleaning or performing a chore at home you wouldn't otherwise do, guys. It could be donating things. It could be passing out bottles of water, et cetera, et cetera. The vineyard has championed this kind of behavior in its movement. And I am suggesting this for you. You've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. Friends, if you don't aim at it, it ain't going to be hit. See, if you aim at nothing, what? You'll hit it every time. So if you don't purpose in your heart to say, you know, I'm going to be led of you, Lord, but I'm going to give myself away. And I know he will point you. God gave me this incredible idea for the uh, blessing the stranger yesterday. And I'm not going to say what it is because I'm not going to bring glory to anybody but the Lord. But he will give that to you. But friends, you have got to purpose yourself to do this. Do you realize if you did this for a month, every day for a month, how radically different your walk would be? How focused on Messiah that you would be? How you would have laid down the things that so easily entangle you? And I want you to purpose yourself to do this. So, in order for you to follow through on this, uh, we need to set an intention around it. So, right now, I'm just going to pause and we're just going to be silent for a minute, and I want you to go in your head, and I want you to decide either yes or no. I don't want you to use any excuses, or maybe I'll do it January 1st or whatever. I want you to simply say to yourself, yeah, I'm going to do this, or nah. Okay, you've made your decision. Are you bold enough to carry it out? Do you trust in the Lord enough, even in the same way that he sent out the disciples with very little? Friends, our calling is our task. We are not called to advance ourselves, but to advance the kingdom through loving others because of our love for God. So... Let's go and do that. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org 
or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.